0: I remember waking up one very cold Boston morning, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I decided to switch majors. I was a computer science major until then. I decided to switch major and she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. Question number one, why aren't I happy? Question number two, how can I become happier?
1: Hi, I'm Vishnu Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Mind Valley podcast. So today's conversation is on the nature of why we are alive in the first place. The Pursuit of Happiness. And our guest today is none other than Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal Ben-Shahar is the creator of Harvard's most popular course. It's a course on happiness. He is also the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy. And you can visit that on happinessstudies.academy. Talbin Saha graduated from Harvard, with a BA in philosophy and psychology, a PhD in organizational studies. He taught two of Howard's most popular courses in Harvard's history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. He was also a teacher of happiness studies at Columbia University. He is a best-selling author whose book has been translated into 25 languages. And get this because he is... Not your regular professor. He's also a certified yoga instructor whose work bridges Eastern and Western traditions, ancient wisdoms, and modern technology, science, and art. He has lectured around the world in companies like Google, Merrill Lynch, PwC, Microsoft, Intel, Orange, Fidelity, and YPO. So, Tal Ben Shaha, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. It's so good to have you here.
0: Oh, so good to be here. Thank you. You know, I've heard you so many times. It's a little strange to be speaking with you. I'm glad to be here.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. And you
1: know what? We now have 250 people live who are going to be interacting with us and already they're posting questions. So, for those of you who are new to the Mind Valley podcast, this is how we do it Mind Valley members join us in the recording live. And every now and then, I defer a question to one of you, to one of our members. So, as we're recording on Zoom, our members are paying attention to Tal. Many of them have read Tal's books. They are coming up with questions and posting it in our Q&A. Other members are voting questions up. And what happens is we use the wisdom of crowds to identify the best questions to ask Tal. And obviously the questions that are gonna give the most meaningful insights to all our listeners are the ones which are gonna bubble up to the top. And then we're gonna make those members live so that they can directly interview Tal. Tal, let's get started first, before, as the audience questions are coming in, I'd love for you to share your incredible story of squash and Israel, the opening story
0: of your book. So I grew up in Israel and at the beginning, at least, there were two tracks in my life. One was school, traditional. The other, which I must say was more passionate about at the time, was playing squash. And I would train very hard. And I must say, as a child, I was not happy. So now that I know the definition of depression, I don't think I was clinically depressed, but I was not far from that. And I remember thinking that, okay, so I'm not happy now, but when I win the Israeli national championship, then I'll be happy. And I continue to train driven by that belief. And I, when I was almost 17, I won the national championships and I was extremely happy for about four hours. And after four hours, I went back to where I was before being unhappy, the same knot in my stomach that I felt. But then I said, okay, so I'm not happy now, but when I become the world champion, then I'll be happy. And I continued along that line. Unfortunately, I got injured, switched the trajectory of my career and from focusing on sports focused on academics. I applied to Harvard, went to Harvard, found myself in my second year doing very well academically. I still played squash. I did fairly well there, doing okay socially, And yet being very unhappy. And I remember waking up one very cold Boston morning, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I decided to switch majors. So I was a computer science major until then. I decided to switch major. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. Question number one, why aren't I happy? Question number two, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate degree as well as my graduate degrees all the time focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, couples, organizations, and ultimately nations increase levels of well-being. That is beautiful.
1: And I love the fact that you started with questions. I remember attending Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny around 10 years back, and he made us all define the questions that we perpetually ask ourselves. And those questions actually... Tony Robbins suggested influence how our life expands. And I love that your question is, how do I make myself happier, happier? In fact, when we were coming up with the promotion for this episode to get all of this live audience in, and we are almost at 300 people now, the original card that went up on our social network was how to be happy. And I said, no, no, you cannot do that. It has to say how to be even happier. I learned that from Tony Robbins. He said, if your question is how to be happy, it implies that you are unhappy. But if your question is how to be even happier, it implies that you are good, that there's more to go. So I love that that was the question you asked yourself.
0: Vision: there are two very important distinctions that, that you pointed to. The first one is a question. Look at the word question. Within question, there is a quest. Mm-hmm. Question begins a quest. This is the beginning of our journey. And related to that journey, Is the journey of happiness. So many people ask me, So Tal, you weren't happy then, 30 years hence, are you finally happy? And my answer to this question is, I don't know. I don't even know how to begin answering it. Why? Because I don't think there is a point before which we're unhappy, after which we are happy. In other words, it's not a binary zero one. Rather, happiness resides on a continuum. So, yes. Today, I'm a lot happier than I was 30 years ago. I certainly hope that 10 years from now, I'll be a lot happier than I am today. It's a lifelong journey and it's a journey that ends when life ends.
1: In your book, you share this really interesting concept. It's sort of like the hamburger model of happiness. And now I have the slide, so I'm gonna share it for those of you who might be watching this on YouTube because a lot of people will be referencing this on a podcast, only in audio, it'll be happy to also describe it. So imagine an X-axis and a Y-axis, okay? And there are four burgers. The vegetarian burger is, as I'm looking at it right now, is you're in your car and you're looking ahead, the vegetarian burger is on the top left. The ideal burger is on the top right. And then you have the bottom left, which is the worst burger, nihilism. And the bottom right is the junk food burger, hedonism. Tao, could you explain this diagram and what this represents?
0: Yeah, So, you know, I thought about this food analogy when I was having my favorite hamburger. And I realized I wasn't truly enjoying the experience as I should because it was extremely tasty, but it was not healthy. And I realized that this hamburger could be equated to hedonism, which is the junk food burger. It's really tasty. It's good for me right now, the present moment experience, perhaps but not great for the future, will not help my health. And therefore, it wasn't a complete experience. Then, looking at the top left corner, you have the uh, vegetarian burger, perhaps. You know, and that may be extremely healthy, but let's take a vegetarian burger that's not very tasty. So it's not great for the present, but it's great for the future. It contributes to my health. And that would be equivalent to the rat race, people who constantly think about the future and are saying, I'll be happy when postponing and sometimes indefinitely postponing joy and pleasure. And then you have the nihilism burger. That is the worst burger. It's neither tasty nor healthy. It's not good for the future. It's not good for the present. Where does happiness reside? Happiness resides on the top right. And that is where we have future benefit and present benefit. So for example, if I am engaged in work that I enjoy the day-to-day and is meaningful to me, I'm doing something that's important to me. Well, then I'm enjoying both present and future benefit. That's happiness. Or a relationship where I enjoy time with my partner and we're building a life together, a future together. That's a happy relationship. Now, what's very important to point out is that that doesn't mean that it's a constant high. That doesn't mean that it's 100% of joy and happiness and pleasure. Every life, even the best of life, has moments of sadness and anger and anxiety and frustration. It's so interesting. This diagram is similar
1: to a diagram in my first book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. We are describing similar concepts, but it's really interesting. We're describing the ideal human state as the intersection of the present and the future, having that balance. And I love that you put in hedonism. I called it the current reality trap. In my example, I say, look, you can smoke a joint and be happy, but you're not contributing, you're not building, you're not moving forward. It is a trap. And I love the burger analogy too. Now, this brings me to the first question, and this is from Amy Wang. And of all the questions that have been coming in, this question shot all the way to the top. So Amy, congratulations. And Amy, if you're open, I'm going to make you a panelist. I'm going to bring you live so you can ask this question directly to Tao. Amy, are you ready to come on? Hi Amy.
2: Hello, Vishen.
1: Where in the world are you right now?
2: I am from Taiwan, but I'm now in Zurich, Switzerland.
1: Oh, wonderful, Amy. And so how long have you been a Mind Valley member?
2: Like a month. <laughs> so pretty That's new here. Awesome. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. So Amy, first tell us what drew you to today's conversation with Dr. Tao?
2: So I was recently talking to my friend. She was absolutely stressed out. She was working hard from a very high demanding job while studying for her entry exam. And she was talking to me basically 100% complaining, complaining about her colleagues, her job, her study. She was going nowhere. And of course, as a Mount Belly student, we tried to give some advice, wisdom that we obtained from our teachers. So I told her, well, you always have happiness at your hand. You can instantly get access to happiness. So why don't you try it? But before she got to try, she was asking me, well, why should I be happy? Is there any other state I can be that is not happy? And I found myself speechless. I thought that happiness was the answer. And she was asking me, is there some way other than happiness that I can also find myself
0: in? The nice and I guess fortunate thing about happiness is that it's multi-layered, meaning there are many elements to happiness. And we can enter happiness through different channels, through different elements. Specifically, think about happiness as comprising the five elements. First of all, spiritual well-being, which is about a sense of meaning and purpose in life, which is about mindfulness, Think about physical well-being, which is an important part of happiness. Think about intellectual well-being, about learning. You know, people who ask questions, who are lifelong learners, also live longer in addition to being happier. Then there is relational well-being, our connection to other people. And finally, emotional well-being. That is about dealing with painful emotions when these arise, and they do sometimes, and cultivating pleasurable emotions. Now, these five elements that comprise the acronym SPIRE, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, each one of them is a potential path to happiness. So when you address your friend, you can say to her, just focus on one. How about cultivating relationships? Let's spend more time together. Or how about learning things that you're really interested in? That's the intellectual well-being? Are you exercising regularly, which is a path through physical well-being into happiness? Do you find a sense of meaning or are you meditating perhaps? Do you have a practice? These are all legitimate, important, evidence-based ways of increasing happiness. So when you are helping your friend, you can help her in a way that resonates with where she is at that moment.
1: Oh, I right. love
0: that, fire. Spiritual, physical, intellectual,
1: relational, emotional. Beautiful. Amy, what an amazing question. Now, Amy, I want you to ask your second question, the one that got 14 votes. You want me to read it out to you? Sure. It says, why are we so obsessed about being happy? Wouldn't this be yet another source of stress? I know mm. someone people feel stressed and annoyed for thinking that she should be happy. Amy, do you want me to answer
0: that question? Yeah, actually, I, I, I
2: think to... that the should word is really yeah. the source of the problem.
0: Yeah. Like, that's I think... a
2: responsibility, not an enjoyment.
0: Yeah, you know, it's the should word. And let me even say more about that. So there's research by Iris Moss showing that people who wake up in the morning and say to themselves, I should be happy or happiness is really important for me who value happiness, these people actually end up being less happy. Now, that's a problem because on the one hand, we're told this, but on the other hand, we're also told, first of all, pursue happiness. Second, we're told how important it is because we know that people who are happier are also kinder and more generous. They're healthier. They have better relationships. They're more successful. So for all those reasons, we want happiness. And yet we're told we shouldn't really pursue it or value it, there is a paradox here. So what do we do? Well, one way to do it is self-deception, which is a way that I don't recommend, and to say, well, I want happiness. Well, I don't want happiness. Wink, wink. Maybe I do. That's not the way to go. The way to go is to pursue happiness indirectly. Let me give you an analogy. Think about sunlight. You look at the sunlight directly, it hurts. It hurts. However, if you take the sunlight and you break it down into its elements, say the colors of the rainbow, then you can observe it and even enjoy it. Directly it hurts, indirectly we benefit. The same with happiness. Pursuing happiness directly can actually hurt. This is what the research by Maas and others show. But if I break down happiness, say to its elements, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, then, I increase levels of happiness without the downside of direct interaction with it or direct pursuit. So to indirectly pursue happiness is the path, the way to go.
1: This is such a beautiful revelation. I love the analogy of looking at sunlight directly versus embracing the sunlight. And I love the concept of spire. I wanna go deeper in that. First off, thank you so much, Amy. Amy, how old are you? You guess? I have no idea, but you seem I mean, really young and freaking brilliant.
2: It's a lie. I don't know. It's a genetic stuff. I am already 25. You're 25.
1: But... <laughs> yeah. Well, you're aging really well. You look wonderful. <laughs> when you're 50, you'll probably look 30.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so.
1: Thank you, Amy. Thank you. So Dr. Tao, Spire is a brilliant insight. It's so easy to remember. I love the phrase. You said, don't look at the sunlight directly. Focus on Spire, on the S-P-I-R-E. But what do you mean by that? How do we focus on the spiritual, the
0: physical, the intellectual, the relational, and the emotional? So going back to the research, if I get up in the morning and I say to myself, I'm going to become happier. I'm going to increase happiness levels. That's not helpful. Sometimes has the opposite effect, in fact. However, if I wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to cultivate my relationships today. So I'm going to spend a quality hour with my BFF, best friend forever, where we're going to interact and talk and hang out. That's increasing happiness. Or I'm going to start working out now three times a week, at least that will increase my levels of happiness. Or I'm going to start a meditation practice. Five minutes a day, that's all that will increase my levels of happiness. And what I'm doing then is indirectly pursuing happiness through its elements, not through the ultimate sunlight, the thing
1: in itself. So are those five elements scientific determinants of happiness? Is
0: there science backing this up? Yeah. So many people ask me when I talk about this and write about Spire, they said, oh, so did you invent Spire? And I said, absolutely not. I synthesized wisdom, other people's wisdom into that spire model. Because wherever you look, where you look, whether you look at Lao Tzu and Confucius and Aristotle and Plato and Patanjali, and when you look at more modern writers, whether it's in philosophy, psychology, theology, literature, you find these elements there. You can extract spire from Shakespeare. You can extract spire from the latest research on neuroscience. These are elements that are part and parcel of who who we are as human beings. So Aristotle talked about us being rational animals. That's intellectual well-being. David Hume talked about us being emotional animals, as did Lao Tzu, comparing our emotions to the flow of water. Every one of the spirit elements you can find traces of, explicit mentions of in the great literature.
1: But isn't there one that's more dominant than the other? Because I recall, I think it was the 1977 Very Happy People Study by Ed Diener at Harvard. Didn't that say that the only thing that truly correlated with happiness, and it was a 0.7 correlation,
0: is the strength of your human connections? Number one predictor of happiness, quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. That's one element of happiness. And yes, to most people, it is Having said that, research is very important. I spend my life doing research and reading research and teaching it. However, no less important than research is me-search. In other words, it's important for me to look inside and to ask what matters to me. So yes, of course, relationships matter to me. My family, my friends, my colleagues matter a great deal. At the same time, for me, a very dominant element of Spire is intellectual well-being. For an athlete, physical well-being. Now, physical well-being is important for everyone. Exercise is important for everyone. For her, it's more important. Just as for me, intellectual well-being is more important. At the same time, learning is important for everyone. The question is, to what degree? And what we can do when we have the SPIRE elements is basically ask ourselves, how am I doing here spiritually? How am I doing intellectually? How am I doing emotionally? Evaluate this, do what I call a SPIRE check-in. And then based on that, on the scores, decide where do I want to invest a little bit more? Where do I want to invest a lot more to increase my overall happiness? So here's where I'm getting a little bit confused,
1: okay? When I think of SPIRE it seems like it's only about me setting goals in those five areas. But you also spoke in your hamburger model, you spoke about the present. How does the present fit in there? Because I can see how we might set a goal to be physically more active. We could set a goal to go out there and maybe date more, to meet more people. But what about the present aspect of your model?
0: There are two places where it appears The first place is in spiritual well-being. The other place is everywhere else. Let me explain. So part of spiritual well-being is being present. Mm -hmm. Part of spiritual well-being is being mindful. Henry Miller said it. Whenever we pay attention to one thing, to anything, it becomes extraordinary. We have a spiritual experience, even if it is just a blade of grass. Albert Einstein said there are two ways to live our life. One is as if nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything is a miracle. And when we're present, we turn the ordinary into extraordinary. So that's where it's explicitly in the model. But where is it more implicitly, however, throughout the Spire model? And that has to do with the whole idea that you pointed out of goal setting. So essentially there are, and this stems from the Hamburger model as well, there are essentially two schools of thought when it comes to setting goals. One school of thought, which is mostly, and I'm using broad, general, imprecise brushstrokes here, generally associated with the West, which is, happiness is about achieving goals. You wanna be happy? Set a goal, get to the top of that mountain, and then you'll be happy. Get that raise, or get that job, or get that partner, or get that life, and you'll be happy. Well, it turns out that that's not the case. Because we know many very successful people who have achieved every conceivable goal and conquered every mountain peak, who are miserable. So it's not just about the future. It's not just about goal achievement, goal attainment. So then you have the other school that says, "Ah, uh-uh, it's not about the future, it's all about the present. Present moment awareness, be mindful, being the here and now." But you know there's also a problem with this model, which is, again, roughly speaking, associated with the East. The problem with that model is that we are goal-oriented creatures. We do care about the future. And the question then becomes, how do you synthesize the two models? And my suggestion is as follows. Yes, have a goal. Have an objective. Have a mountain peak that you want to reach. And once you know where you want to go, let it go. Focus on the present journey. And in a way, it is the future goal that liberates us to enjoy the present. Because if I wake up every morning and say, "Uh, what should I do today? I'm not really sure. Well, that's not happiness. But if I have a clear goal, I wake up in the morning and I'm liberated to focus on the present journey, on the here and now. I have to share this uh, with you, Vishen. So my wife took Robin Sharma's course with you. And she didn't just love it. It was life-changing. And what was life-changing about it was the morning ritual of waking up and focusing she knew exactly what she wanted to do she was reminded of that and then she could let go and just be present so happiness is about having that goal or those meaningful goals and then once we have them we can let go 27th of april my publisher said my book is going to come out i have that goal i don't need it anymore I can just focus on writing every day for three to four hours. I love that. What you're saying reminds me of this quote by Bruce Lee.
1: I actually have my son and daughter coming over tonight and I'm making them watch a Bruce Lee biopic because there's so much to learn from Bruce Lee. And so I was just reading about Bruce and what you said reminded me of this quote I read him say, Bruce Lee believed that goals often just serve as a target and that the important thing about goals is that they give you something to work towards, but not to lock you down if something is not working. I love that. I have not heard this before. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider joining Mind Valley All Access. Now you can sign up to Mind Valley All Access and unlock every Mind Valley program. Instantly, get access to transformation from all of the world's best minds in everything from parenting to biohacking to mind, body, spirit, entrepreneurship, work productivity. Learn from the likes of Ben Greenfield, Jim Quick, Shafali Sabari, Stephen Kotler, and more, all available to you for less than $2 a day. Simply visit mindvalley.com forward slash now. That's mindvalley.com Forward slash and you'll be surprised to see that Mindvalley All Access now comes with advanced technologies to completely transform your learning, your networks, and your human connections, including our new private social network for students, Connections by Mindvalley, and our altered state inducement app, Ombana, which complements our regular training with altered state methodologies to transform you at a subconscious level, check it all out on mindvalley.com forward slash n o w mindvalley.com forward slash now. Let's go on then to this next question. So, as we've been talking, Any Salfo, who is a community manager at Mindvalley, has been monitoring comments, and there was this beautiful comment from Esan Shahab Nazar that Any thinks we should answer. So, Esan. Are you open to coming on live to ask Dr. Tal your question? I'm going to make you a panelist. I hope you're comfortable. And if you want, just say no. Okay, but Esan I've just given you the floor. Would you like to turn on your camera, come on live and ask that question? Hi, Esan. Hi, Richard. hi. Hi, where in the world are you right now? I'm in Toronto. Nice to meet you, actually. It's a long time I'm waiting to see you live and it's my dream, actually. My name is actually Esan. My parent called me Esan, and my son called me Son. And <laughs> yeah, I selected Son form for the future. I don't waste your time. Actually, my question is about money, and what's the relationship of the money with Aspire? That when they have financial problem, we feel unhappy, and I want to understand that what's the relationship? It's because you mentioned it, these five elements: spiritual,
0: intellectual, physical, and emotional, and relationship. I'm very glad you brought this up. I mentioned that my book is coming out, and it's going to be a book about Spire. And it's an academic press that is publishing the book. And an academic press sends all the books for review. It's an anonymous review. And one of the reviewers said exactly what you said. Where's the money in all this? He said, and I recommend you add another letter to Spire. And he said, I recommend you to add the letter A so it becomes aspire, so it becomes affluence well-being in addition to spiritual, physical intellect. And I actually thought about it and I thought you know, it was you know, obviously brilliant. And I decided not to, not because money is not important. Let me share with you some of the studies and then, or a couple of the studies, and then why I did not add A to aspire. So money matters a lot to happiness, up to a certain point. So, a son, if you don't have enough money to support your family or for your basic needs, of course, you give an extra $1,000, is going to make you a lot happier. Money will affect your happiness. Beyond basic levels, and I mean basic, I mean food, shelter, security, education, beyond that, money doesn't add much to happiness. Having said that, there are worse and better ways of spending our discretionary income, so money beyond the basic needs. For instance, when people are asked, what should I spend my extra money on? Should I go on a holiday or should I buy a new car? Well, most people will say, well, a car, because a car I'll have three years from now, a holiday will be over in two weeks. It turns out that that's not the case, that a vacation with people you love will actually contribute more in the long term not just for those two weeks, in the long term to your happiness. So experiences, on the whole, matter more than things when it comes to happiness. Also, another way to use money to increase happiness is giving. Generosity, helping other people contributes a great deal to happiness. Now, why not add money as one of the aspire elements? When you look at the spire elements, each one is an integral part of who we are as human beings. So spiritual well-being, well, just listen to the existentialists. They talk about us being spiritual beings. In terms of physical well-being, well, whenever people define human beings, they say they are this kind of animal. The physical side is indisputable. It's part of who we are as human beings. In terms of Aristotle, I mentioned earlier, rational animals, he says. That's intellectual well-being. We are certainly relational animals, social animals. We are also emotional beings. But are we financial beings? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. And there are very few economists that would say that. Yes, finance is important. Money is important. Livelihood is extremely important and yet it doesn't define us as human beings. Now, each one of the spire elements contributes to our ability to make more money. Because if we find work that is meaningful to us, we're more likely to do well there. If I take care of my physical health, I'll have a lot more energy. Then, of course, I'll be more successful and effective at work. My concentration will be better. If I'll continuously learn intellectual well-being of course, I will be able to be more prosperous. So they're all related. However, it's not one of the core pillars of the happiness model. Love your response. But And I remember
1: reading a study that said that happiness goes up until you hit about 75000 in annual income if you're in the United States, and then it kind of just stays stagnant. It doesn't go beyond there. So there seems to be a happiness cap on money.
2: Yes.
0: And the happiness cap, one of the Great things about these studies is that they show, you know, the big picture and average. The downside is that it gives you a big picture and average. So 75,000 if you live in the U.S. on average, but also not if you live in Manhattan. Right. It's going to be high. You live in a small village where cost of living is a lot lower. A lot of it depends on what other people have, because we do compare ourselves, again, for good and ill with the environment. The bottom line is that we do want our basic needs met. We do want to be able to feed our families and send our children to get good education and be able to enjoy our life beyond the day to day concern. After yeah. that, money doesn't make that much of a difference.
1: Thank you so much, Tao, for answering that question. And Isan, thank you for asking such a beautiful question. It's yes. so nice Thanks. to see you. Thanks. Welcome to Mind Valley. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vishen. Thanks, Tal. And all of you, I want you guys to know, when I bring you guys up and put you on video, you have the right to grab that and share it on your social media. So that is you. I want to honor you as our members. I want to give you an opportunity to share this on your social media so you can share this clip. It's completely yours. Okay. Tal, as you were talking, I just realized about an hour ago, I bought your book on my Kindle. I sat down with a protein shake because i just come back from the gym I turned on the Christmas lights because I just decorated my house. I lay on my sofa. I covered myself in a blanket and I started reading and I felt this flood of happiness. And I was just thinking, wow, I feel so good right now. And I realized it was Spire. I just come back from the gym because I was Mm -hmm. feeling that I treated my body well. I was reading your book. That was my intellectual stimulation Mm -hmm. The stories in your book were giving me an emotional high. And I realized all of the dots were connecting and I put myself in such a beautiful state and it didn't require oodles of money. Yeah, those (laughs) Christmas lights were a little bit expensive, but it didn't require oodles of money, but it was just such a beautiful sense of dose of happiness. So that's one of the happiest moments I experienced in the last couple of days because it's been a stressful past couple of days. So I'm really loving this model, but there's one thing that's bothering me the S B I R and the E. What is confusing me about the E is E is emotional, but isn't happiness an emotion? So, isn't hmm. that like a recursive loop? I don't
0: understand that. Good. This is also still a response to Hassan. Um, how we define happiness is up to us. The message didn't come from the mountaintop. This is happiness, and this is the only way happiness is. There are many definitions to happiness, and we need to work with the ones that work for us. So, for example, if someone wants aspire, if that works better for them, by all means. There are many people who define happiness as pleasure, and that's okay. To my mind, it's not enough, and it's not enough because when we equate happiness with pleasure, what that means is that there is a very narrow in to happiness, and there is an inevitability of unhappiness throughout our life and when we deepen our understanding of happiness it becomes much more stable and much more accessible so mm-hmm. let me say a few things about emotional well-being because of course it is an important part of happiness even if it's not the whole of happiness when it comes to emotional well-being we need to learn to embrace accept painful emotions there's a beautiful poem by rumi the 13th century Sufi poet called The Guest House, where he talks about how we need to invite as guests all emotions, no matter what they are, the pleasurable, the painful, joy, sorrow. And when we invite them in as our guests, as our friends, rather than reject them, this is the best way in which we can deal with them. Because the paradox is that when we reject painful emotions, then they intensify, they grow stronger. When we accept them, embrace them, invite them in, they actually don't overstay their welcome. And we open ourselves up to other emotions, such as joy, such as love, such as excitement. And by understanding emotions this way, what we do is we open ourselves up also to the full range of the spire. Because sometimes I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like writing. are such days as well and then i say to myself that's okay i'm giving myself the permission to be human to experience whatever it is that i'm experiencing however i still continue to write because meaning and intellectual well-being are both very important parts of happiness and you know what very often happens after once i get into my writing emotions follow and i start to feel a lot better as well but even if i don't that's okay I'm not looking to lead a perfectly inspired life. I'm looking to becoming happier and happier over time.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. I love that you dropped the Rumi quote. I'd like to read out the guest house poem. This is the Coleman Bach's translation for all of you, because I think you're going to find this interesting. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep the house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Wow, that poem gives me goosebumps. Each has yeah. been sent as a guide from beyond. Tao, someone posted this in the question. I won't read their name, because this is a very personal question, okay? But I think other people may be thinking the same thing, but may want to be anonymous. The question is, I'm going to use this person's example. I have a son who was depressed because his wife left him for another man. How then do I help bring happiness back into the life of someone I love so much who is going through so much pain?
0: That's a tough question. It's, as you said, Vishen, it's a common question because we experience loss in our lives, whether it's loss of a relationship, whether it's loss of a loved one, whether it's loss of identity. And whenever we experience loss, there are essentially two ways, again, very roughly speaking, essentially two ways of dealing with loss. One way is to say, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to get through it. The stiff upper lip kind of approach. When we look at people who are like that, we say, wow, that's impressive, isn't it? How they're able to overcome difficulty. They're so strong. That's admirable. So that's one approach. The second approach is they break down. They cry, they talk about it, they express their feelings and their emotions. They're really struggling, and we know it. And when we look at them, we say, wow, I hope they'll be okay. I'm really worried about them. Mm -hmm. So these are the two models that we have. Fast forward a year later, the second group, almost with no exception, is doing a lot better than the first group. The second group processed the experience. The second group let nature take its course. And it hurts to lose a partner. It hurts to lose a loved one. It hurts to lose an identity, whether it's to be you know, laid off from work or to fail at something that we really, really wanted. These things hurt. It's part of being alive. The question is what do we do with it? Do we invite them in as guests? That pain, that agony. Or do we reject them at the door and say, not here? And when we reject them, they end up growing. This is the paradox of painful emotions. Embrace them and they will not overstay their welcome. In contrast, you know, I saw in the chat, someone said, yeah, I love Rumi and Khalil Gibran. Khalil Gibran in The Prophet talks about, also a Sufi poet, talks about how each time we experience sorrow, we're carving out a piece from inside. And when we carve out the piece from the inside, we have a greater capacity for joy as well. So my answer, give them the permission to be human, be there for them, support them, let them experience the pain. And I'm sure you should experience your pain as well, because it's painful to see people we care about in pain. And then ask yourself, what do you think would be most helpful? After, we embrace the emotion. Would it be most helpful for us to maybe start exercising together or meeting more often or start dating or at least look for that date? And that may not happen in the first month or even six months. The pain itself heals. You know, in Buddhism, there is a talk of two levels of suffering. The first level of suffering is inevitable when we experience a loss, when we go through hardships or difficulties. That's the first level. It's inevitable. The second level of suffering comes when we reject the first. The first level is inevitable. The second is a choice. So help your son make the choice of accepting, embracing, experiencing, and let the natural healer do its work. Wow, that was profound. Really,
1: really, really profound. I almost shed a tear as I listened to you, Tao. Thank you for that. I'm reading the comments and people are really touched by that last response. So the person who asked that question, I hope that that was useful to you. I'm sure it was. And Tal, thank you. I just so appreciate your grace and how you show up and how you address these questions. Thank you. As we come to the end of this conversation, Tal, I want to ask you the final question. You mentioned earlier that, or you hinted that you work with governments. What can we be doing at a societal, at a government, at a countrywide level to elevate happiness. We've all heard of countries like Bhutan who've created a national happiness measure. And I don't know if maybe you're involved in that, but what can we do as human society to start taking happiness more seriously at a national level?
0: So Vishen, let me share an experience that one of my mentors, Marty Seligman, considered the founder of the field of positive psychology, introduces his participants to, and this is when he speaks to parents and teachers primarily. He says, let me ask you two questions. Let's make two lists on the board. Question number one, list number one, what do you most want for your children? And then he writes on the board and, you know, the parents, teachers say, we want them to be happy. We want them to have good relationships. We want them to be resilient, to be able to deal with hardships and loss and so on. And we want them to be healthy or to know how to lead a healthy life and on and on. And so he makes this first list. Then he says, okay, question number two, list number two. What do children learn in school? And what do they say? Well, they learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, geography, history, economics, whatever it is. Now there is almost no overlap between the two lists. I'm not saying that the second list is not important. It's very important to learn reading, writing, arithmetic, and so on. However, why are schools almost entirely ignoring the first list? Especially today, when we have a science of happiness, we know how to help children increase levels of well-being. We know how to cultivate more resilience or grit. We know how to improve relationships, whether it's romantic relationships or friendships or professional relationships. We have the science for that. And the science is accumulating literally by the minute. Why are schools ignoring that first list by and large? And this is where I think societal change has to start. Vision, what you're doing with Mind Valley is so important because you're doing just that. You're educating towards higher levels of well-being, happiness, broadly defined. Why aren't schools doing that day in and day out? Why not, in addition to mathematics, also teach well-being? Why not, in addition to reading and writing, also teach physical health? And when you teach those things, it will also help the second list, because we know that students who have more of a sense of meaning and purpose, who are more resilient, will also study better. If they exercise on a regular basis, they'll actually be more creative. Their memory will improve and on and on. So the two lists are interconnected, should be interconnected. We don't have enough of that in schools today. That is where I would start. That, to me, is the leverage point in societal transformation. Janusz Korczak, the famed Polish educator, said back in the 1930s, you want to change the world, change education. That's where we need to start.
1: That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful answer. Thank you so much, Tal. This has been such an amazing conversation. Now, for all of you who are here, I want to show you Tal's website because I would love to tell you about Tal's work. Go to happinessstudies.academy. And perhaps you are watching this on YouTube or maybe you're listening to this as a podcast. Just remember this name, happinessstudies.academy. Dot academy. So, the funny thing about that domain name is there are three S's in there happinessstudies.academy. And that's where you can sign up for Tal's Science of Happiness class. The next class is now open, it's starting in February 2021. Tell us a little bit about this class. So, this
0: is a year long experience where we ask two questions. First, how can I become happier? Second, How can I help others become happier? And we have students from over 60 countries all over the world. Some are therapists and coaches and managers and parents and teachers, every profession, and applying it to their lives, personal lives as well as professional lives. Now, increasing happiness is a value in and of itself. And in addition, increasing happiness also contributes to creativity, to productivity, to engagement, to physical health. So there are all those wonderful byproducts.
1: Now, I also see that you've launched something called the Happier School Program, where you are actually, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, consulting with schools to bring happiness into the schooling
0: curriculum. We've created a curriculum which is mostly around the great stories, the great books, the great literature from around the world. So we bring in African folktales and Greek mythology. We talk about Confucius and we talk about Marianne Evans and Rumi and bringing these ideas and teaching them from first grade all the way to 12th grade to incorporate, to inculcate the spire elements. And this is for teachers. So teachers who are interested could enroll in this. Yes, it's for teachers. It's for schools and ultimately for the students. And
1: I want to mention everything you do, because I believe that your mission is so important. I mean, for every person who learns from Tao, they become an influencer of happiness. They get to spread this wisdom. And this is like the ultimate state of human existence. Now, Tao, you also offer an online certificate in happiness studies, CIHS. Could you tell us about that? Is that what you get after you complete the February 2021 class?
0: Yes, this is the certificate where eventually you become a happiness trainer, where we encourage, of course, our students and provide them the tools to serve it forward. I see. Take these ideas to their clients, to take these ideas to their students, to their families and spread happiness.
1: That's amazing, amazing. Love, love, love what you do. Love what you do. And I'd love to see if we can work together more and bring some of your ideas to Mind Valley and in turn drive more Mind Valley students to the Happiness Studies Academy because our missions are so aligned. So thank you for that. So, again, those of you who are listening on the podcast and don't have the benefit of seeing the video, go to happinessstudies.academy and check out the certificate in happiness studies. It's kicking off February 2021. Tal, thank you so much for joining us. We are at the end of this broadcast. Now, for those of you who are here, stay back because we're going to do a group sharing. Any cell phone or community manager is going to come on. She'd love to get those of you who are attending to share your biggest insights so that we can all come together as a tribe, sit back and let some of this wisdom really sink
0: in before we go back to the rest of our lives. Tal, thank you so much. Thank you, Vision, and thank you to Mind Valley for the amazing work.
1: I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.